Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone out there in the internet stratosphere. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Breakdown. My obsession, I am Matt Koplik. With me, oh boy, I need to take a big old breath before I go through all these credits here. Um, I have someone who, if you were wanting to feel maybe unproductive today, this person is a producer. She co-hosts the concert series that I find very informative and enjoyable if it only even runs a minute. She's the author of the Untold Stories of Broadway Anthology. Uh, She's the creative and programming director at Fine Scenes 54 Below, recipient of the 2020 Lincoln Center Emerging Artists Award. And she recently worked on the Tick, Tick, Boom movie. So, you know, she spits where you stand. Uh, Please welcome Miss Jennifer Ashley Tepper. That was such a great introduction. Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, I just like, I was figuring out like what things to hit on to introduce you as and I'm like all this shit is good and you know I felt good about myself this morning and I was like you know what would feel great take me down a peg just put include everything Jen had done <laughs> I also I appreciate the shout out to if it only even runs a minute and I can always tell when someone knows merrily by if they get the title exactly right and I mm. love that so thank you I <laughs> yeah oh, I also wanted to say we have someone who for the first time not only might know as much as I do, but might know more than I do about Broadway. So get ready, kids. We'll have to see. We'll have to see how this nerd fest goes. I sometimes feel like I have COVID brain, like it's a little fuzzy, but we'll see how far we get into musical theater trivia. Oh, that don't you worry. We'll get into it. I, speaking of your series, if it only even runs a minute, yes, the Merrily reference, but you have one video that I love because of all the tea backstage, but then also it was just a really good mashup. It was um, Anna Marie Bobby talking about Smile. Mm-hmm. And I love Smile. People who listen to this podcast know how much I love Smile. It's like my number one, I want Encore to do it yesterday show uh, with obviously the revised Samuel French book. But I loved that video. Uh, so I thank you, you for- brought that up. I actually was thinking about it recently because Craig Burns, amazing casting director and uh, the person who runs Bygone Broadway, like the greatest Instagram account of Broadway history, uh-huh. sent me some like little treasures recently. And one of the things he sent me is this magazine, like a theater magazine from the month that Smile came out that just has like spreads and spreads of Smile photos. And so I was like looking at all these costumes from the show that I had never seen before. Oh yeah, it, it's wild. Um, that show had a lot- sort of riding on its shoulders they were sort of thought to be like the hope that american theater can like rebuke the british mega musical and sort of under the pressure they turned this what should have been like a medium-sized musical dark comedy into this big overbloated musical and it's still entertaining what they did but like not what the show really was supposed to be 
Yeah. You know, there's something in like the zeitgeist with like feud and versus and all these things now where I started thinking about, um, you know, when Bob Fosse was doing his last new musical big deal mm -hmm. and he was so angry about like Les Mis, which was like, oh, the British are going to take over Broadway and it's not going to be these new American musicals. And then like Marvin Hamlish being furious out of town with smile about Phantom. And it's like that um, phenomenon that was happening, especially in the mid to late eighties of like the American musicals versus the British musicals and the way that the British musicals triumphed in that way for a while. Um, mm -hmm. It's really interesting, especially when you come to think of like smile and the material that we know being what it is so incredible and so lost and underappreciated. Oh, absolutely. Have you ever listened to recordings of the original production of Smile? Oh, I thought you were going to say, so the original Carolyn Lee Marvin Hamlish score. Because oh, no, I've definitely listened to some of that. <laughs> Choices. Uh, yeah. Um, no, I have. I've definitely, so I produced a Smile reunion concert at 54 Below a number of years you ago. You produced, well, how, of course you produced that, 54 Below. What, are the, what yeah. the hell am I saying? Well, I mean, honestly, 54 Below, we do like, under normal circumstances, 18 shows a week and hundreds of shows a year. And I certainly don't produce even a tenth of them. But I did produce the Smile reunion, which was really awesome because my musical theater godmother, Mana Allen, was in the original cast of Smile. So I got to kind of see her reunite with like, and I know Anne Bobby pretty well also. Mm -hmm. And so seeing like them reunite with almost the entire original cast came, like it was such a huge number of them, um, of these women who really bonded, you know, many years ago. Um, and we also had um, a bunch of younger folks come and sing parts too. So it was kind of like new generation, um, original cast. It was really cool. I love that. We, I mean, honestly, we're already going into a treasure trove of smile and I cannot emphasize this enough. <laughs> My listeners are tired of hearing me talk about it. Uh, they're also tired of hearing me talk about the 94 carousel, which I know bygone Broadway is also obsessed with. Yeah. Um, but so we'll move on from there. Jen, how did you come to find theater? Or how did it come to find you? I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, um, which uh, very far away from New York City, but I was very lucky in that the average age in South Florida is, you know, 80. So I was lucky to be around um, a lot of regional theater, a lot of tours. Um, and I was taken to the theater by, you know, my family. No one worked in theater, but everyone really appreciated and enjoyed it. So I was lucky enough to get taken as a kid. And my real gateway was going to theater camp when I was nine and being an Annie. And at that point, I was just like, all I want to do is, you know, get cast albums with my Allowance. All I want to do is like learn about what what Gypsy and West Side Story are. Um, it kind of spear that that like spearheaded my lifelong quest to learn everything I could about musicals. I love it. What were some of the more formative cast albums for you as a kid? You know, um, Annie was definitely first just because it was the first show I did, but it was such an array for me of um, shows like Bye Bye Birdie and Grease and, you know, Gypsy and shows like A Chorus Line and Fiddler that I was exposed to either through like movies or through tours or regional productions. And then shows that um, basically what I was lucky to have parents who were like, you know, if you want eight cast albums for Hanukkah, you can get them. Just tell us which ones you want. And so I would go, oh, you know, like I really am interested in learning what Follies is or I really am interested interested in learning, um, you know, what these shows that maybe were lesser known or that I didn't have as much access to that I later discovered, um, you know, ran for a shorter period of time or, mm -hmm. you know, were underappreciated in certain ways. Um, it was all kind of equal in my head. You know, if I had a stack of like my 40 cast albums, it wasn't like, oh, Merrily We Roll Along is worth less than a chorus line. I kind of saw it as like, I think in a different way than someone who maybe grew up closer to New York or really around Broadway might have seen it. Um, so that was really like the beginning of all of it for me. And I really loved um, kind of learning new shows via the liner notes and the cast albums and uh. teaching them to anyone who would listen to me. Yeah, uh, I definitely feel that. Do you remember like what was your first 
book on theater, like history book? That's a great question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that. You know, I definitely among my first books like were Knots in the Scary by Ken Mandelbaum, which is like my favorite theater book and the books mm-hmm. by Scott Miller about musicals. Um, I don't know if they were my first, but they were probably, I definitely had them in the first like year that I started reading theater books. You know, it wasn't like I got the big um, coffee table book on like Broadway musicals because I kind of had that overview. I like had that understanding. The first theater books I read were me being like, I want to learn more about, you know, Wildcat and you know, what's Mac and Mabel. So I definitely was really, really influenced at a young age by Ken Mandelbaum's Not Since Carrie book. That's a good answer. The reason I ask is because like I can pinpoint the exact moment a monster was born in my life, which was my mom. So my dad used to do a lot of work in LA and my mom would go with him sometimes. And there used to be this really tiny theater bookshop. It was like right next to Fred Siegel. And this is sort of like who I am with my mother. She would like go into Fred Siegel and then she would go into the tiny little theater bookshop for me. And there was, Stephen Susskind has these two books, uh, Opening Nights on Broadway and More Opening Nights on Broadway. Jen just nodded her head and like, oh yeah, I know it. That Those two books were like the things that I think I might've been seven or eight, just like I devoured them. And then eventually discovered books like Not Since Carrie and, you know, uh, everything was possible. And it, and it was sort of like, oh, there are books that can give you more information. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My family would always joke that like at the dinner table, I would just start like spouting facts. Like, did you know that the original Sound of Music ran for 1400 <laughs> and something performances and that Chicago only had like two really good reviews when it opened and the rest were kind of mixed to pans and blah, blah, blah. And like only Clive Barnes likes Patti Lapone and Evita. Like it's <laughs> like that kind of stuff. Uh, and it'd be like mad for trying to eat. I love so, that. Yeah. So no, I just, when I also reminded me, just like the story about walking into a bookstore, made me remember that definitely one of the first books I had was also the Rent Bible. That was like a very early one. Mm. Did you ever have that one? I never had that one. I got into Rent uh, kind of later in my teenage years, and by the time I got into it, I didn't need to necessarily buy books on it because all the information was like on the internet. Uh, yeah, there aren't many books like on very specific musicals that I have. It's more about like general overviews of either genres or decades or whatnot. Follies, I think, might be the only one on a specific musical. Uh, not counting coffee table books, because like I I am a city kid and my family all loves theater, was all involved in theater in some ways. So, like they all have their own coffee table books and I have now inherited all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not complaining. What would you say is your favorite musical? Or do you have like a couple? You know, my favorite musical is Merrily We Roll Along. It has been since, you know, for decades since I was a kid. And I've been like truly, truly blessed to like get to know the original cast and do a lot of historian work with them. Um, but what's hard is like, even though that's my favorite musical, over the years as like, you know, you work on shows and like you do all of these different projects, it's like, is my favorite show like my favorite show that I ever worked on or does it remain merrily? It's so funny to like have that kind of adjust over the years. There's a show that I got to work on. Uh, one of the first shows that I worked on with my frequent collaborator, Joe Iconis called Blood Song of Love. And we did it at Ars Nova in 2010. And it's like, you know, I probably will never get a tattoo. It's just not my personality. But if I ever do, it'll be from that show. Um, and like, it's such a special show to me. And sometimes people say favorite musical and it comes to my head. So it's such a different thing to be like merrily the show that shaped my aesthetic as a theater person. And like, then the show that I would like maybe get a tattoo and bleed for that I worked on myself as an adult <laughs> it, it can always change i'm sorry I, it was you said it so quickly and you moved past it so quickly and i just when you when jen said i'm not gonna get a tattoo it's just not my personality i actually 
fell apart. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. So let's get into it because we have an obsession today. One that I fully sign off on. Uh, <laughs> Love it. Ms. Jen, what is our obsession today? Maltby and Shire, of course. <laughs> Who are Maltby and Shire? Uh, so Richard Maltby and David Shire, one of my favorite, favorite musical theater writing teams of all time. I thought it would be fun to kind of obsess over them together. Uh, they are like you know, heroes of mine for their writing. And they've had such a fascinating duo career as a writing team. And then also individually as artists. Um, I first became obsessed with them. And then I want to hear about like, when did you first hear them? But I first became obsessed with them. Um, I heard some songs from starting here, starting now, when I was like in middle school, some of the high schoolers who did like cool songs and thespians were competing with songs from starting here, starting now. And I was immediately like, what are these songs? Like I'm obsessed with them. Um, and I bought the cast recording as soon as I could find it. But I just was like who are these writers who their lyrics are so fascinating and detailed and like interesting and original and the music is so unbelievably like catchy and poppy and then like deep and melancholy and like so eclectic and it's you know it's integrated in a way that feels so true to both music and lyric and like my favorite musical theater all does it's so deep on like character studies you know it's like every song is a character study so anyway um that was my first of their recordings and then you know we can like spitball from there but what was the first stuff of theirs that you heard well not well to date myself i was born in 1990 and i was a new york city theater kid so my gateway drug obviously was big the musical amazing <laughs> the the show that revolutionized broadway by having a kid ensemble that could kick face and belt their face um before matilda there was big so yeah that and i was upset I, when i talk obsessed i mean obsessed with that musical yeah. and then I went to theater camp and Stage Door loved doing Starting Here, Starting Now. <laughs> they, they have this thing where they try not to repeat shows um, until after like three years of having done it. And Starting Here, Starting Now is something that they, they truly did like every three to four years because it is a review. They would pack it with people who they thought were talented, but maybe didn't fit into say like West Side Story or Jesus Christ Superstar. And it just worked really well. And I remember seeing... Uh, like preview performance that a cast of Starting Here, Starting Now did when I was 14 and they did uh, Pleased With Myself. And I was like, this song is a bop. Tell me more. And then I actually became very good friends with Richard's daughters, Emily and Charlotte from Stage Door. Charlotte and I did Little Shop of Horrors together. And then Emily and I did Thoroughly Modern Millie and Bat Boy together. Uh, she was Mrs. Mears. I was Ching Ho. That won't ever happen again. Um, and I've had them both on this pod and just getting to meet Richard and like learn more about it all definitely helped sort of uh, fan the flames. And then I went off to college where like all of our teachers were like, here are the writers who we think are the best people to use in class because, you know, there are plenty of great songwriters, but it's like, these are the people that will help you work on your voice and also help you act while singing. Because as far as I'm aware, every single Malpy and Shire song is very actable. And I don't want to say easy to act, but they help you so much. You know, like the blueprint is there and you just, you just got to go with it. So that's me. 
Yeah. You know, so many things you just said. So first of all, big, I love big and like cross the line is the greatest thing ever. And like dancing all the time is the greatest thing ever. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually, so one of the best news, one of the best books that is about like one musical and the making of one musical is this book. It's about big called making it big, which like, Sorry, I have that book too. I, I misspoke yeah. earlier. I have that book too. That book dissects like the Tony Award um, kind of logistics and like the ins and outs of voting better than any book. Um, I, I just really love that book. Um, but also, so one of the greatest things that ever happened at Runs Minute is Frank Blasnick, who was an original cast member, did this um, kind of breakdown of the three songs that existed before Cross the Line during mm -hmm. that part of the show and how they got workshopped and changed out of town. But like he created this like brilliant medley with our musical director, Caleb Hoyer, and like they did that. And what was so crazy was that that runs a minute many years ago was at La Poisson Rouge, which was was managed at the time by Brett Tabasel, who was one of the original leads in Big and now is like, you know, a very incredible like nightclub manager, general manager, but like doesn't perform anymore. And I literally was like, this is so New York. Like it was the most New York thing ever. Um, I love Big. And the thing with Pleased With Myself that kind of blows my mind is like, I was obsessed with Starting Here, Starting Now. And that's like one of my favorite songs from it. Like, I just think that song mm -hmm. is incredible. Um, and maybe like eight years ago, do you ever, I mean, this happens to me when um, I'm like, now we've been in quarantine. So it's happened to me like a hundred times, but I was like homesick with the flu, maybe like eight years ago. And I was like a little loopy on cold medicine. And I was like, I'm going to listen to like, you know, some bootleg that I've never heard before. And I ended up, it, it never has happened to me like this before, where I was like, is this my favorite thing that's ever happened? Or am I high on cold medicine? And it was, how do you do? I love you, which was Malpy and Shire's um, show that closed out of town in 1967 that pleased with myself and several of the other songs in starting here, st starting now are from. And that show, that recording of that show was like the most mind blowing discovery of like, these guys were so ahead of their time in the tone of this show, the comedy of the show, the sound of this show. There were so many songs that I had never heard before because they're not in any of their reviews that I thought were brilliant. Um, and they later came and spoke about it and like were very, you know, generous to me and like treating my obsession with it kindly at Runs a Minute. Um, and I had them like, I had some people sing this song from it called Still Single, which like is never done. It was never recorded. It's this song for three women that I'm like, this is the best song ever. Um, and so I just like, I'm so amazed is with them all the time with this long career that they've had and all this work that like people don't even know that's brilliant yeah so okay so i think we're gonna go into it because you just naturally are there but i do want to have sort of the four main pillars for me anyway in terms of them in theater which is starting here starting now baby closer than ever and then big yes. uh because they, they've obviously done other other things together take flight obviously how do i do i love you uh some other things but those are i feel like the four big ones and they all are connected to other things throughout their career. So starting here, starting now, I didn't know until like maybe six or seven years ago that almost all of those songs are from other shows. Yeah. I did not know that. And the sort of the story behind it, I guess, is that like, you know, they had been touted for the later part of the 60s and early 70s as like a songwriting team to watch. They, they're going to be the next Bach and Harnick, next Kander and Ebb. And they would keep getting projects produced and then they would usually close out of town or close and you know whatever through no fault of their own it was always like a director who didn't know how to direct or a producer who like didn't know how to spend the money or anything like that uh and starting here starting now did it i think it started at manhattan theater club am i making that up 
Yeah, it did. It started at Manhattan Theater Club and it moved to this, um, what's now like a restaurant on 46th Street. Um, but everything that you said is so fascinating to me about their career. And I also think it's so great that they met at Yale as students and they uh -huh. like wrote two shows as students. Um, one of which, um, Lynn Meadow, who's like the artistic director of MTC for many years, as a kid, she used to be in some of the musicals at like Yale because they didn't have, um, you know, female students at that time. So they had to bring in women from the community. And so she met Malthy and Shire when she was like a 14 year old in the chorus of their like Cyrano musical and then ended up, you know, obviously producing their show at MTC. I love that. Um, but also a story that I'm like obsessed with about that is that uh, Richard and David were so like, a characters from Smash, I guess, that they were like, we're going to do our college musical at the Phoenix, which was this off-Broadway theater that was sometimes considered Broadway. It's like where Greece started. It's where Calcutta, uh -huh. all of that. Um, and, you know, it's downtown on Third Avenue. And they were like, we're going to rent the Phoenix for a night. We're 22, but we're going to like bring our college musical to the Phoenix. And how Prince and Stephen Sondheim heard about this and were like, we have to see this musical by these like crazy upstart kids that rented the Phoenix. So that's how they first, you know, connected, which I just think is like, that story always makes me like crazy. <laughs> this, the Phoenix got renamed it to the Intermedia. Yeah. yeah. Are you impressed with me yet? So uh, impressed. So impressed. That's, uh, it was Intermedia when uh, Best Little Whorehouse was there. Yes. Um, yeah. Phoenix was when it was Once Upon a Mattress and Golden, Golden Apple. Apple. <laughs> yeah. Golden Apple, which might be the first off-Broadway transfer in Broadway history, or at least like the off-Broadway transfer as we know it. Totally. I don't think because it wasn't so much that the Phoenix was a Broadway theater, but more like Broadway shows would sometimes play there, like while they would transfer sometimes or like in a down time. Yeah, it used to be a little bit looser as far as like if a show is in this theater but on a Broadway contract, it's a Broadway show, and if it's uh -huh. on this in this theater and on an off-Broadway contract, it's an off-Broadway show. Um, and that applied to the Phoenix at times, and then also to several of the smaller houses in Times Square that were like Broadway, but sometimes off-Broadway. Um, yeah, like the looser. Princess, right? Not the no, the Princess. That's where Pump Boys Nine Nets were. Uh, different Princess Theater though, because there was a Princess Theater before that. <laughs> yes. Uh, Leonidas, Leonidas Nicole somewhere is so happy that I remember all of this development of the American musical knowledge. Um, but what I love about the origin of starting here, starting now is sort of like, I don't know. Do you watch, do you watch Drag Race, Jen? Have you ever watched it? I, I'm not like, I don't know Drag Race very well. Okay. Uh, doesn't really matter. But one of the things about it that they always talk about is like, you have to bet on you. Like you have to be your biggest champion. Even if like there, you can know your limitations and your failings, but don't be like, oh, I can't do it. You know, you got to bet on you. And with starting here, starting now, it sort of felt like Walpy and Shire were like, listen, we've had like four false starts. We, we think we're really good. Uh, and we're kind of tired of people taking our work and like bungling it and doing all these other things. So we're gonna, you know, do our own thing with our music and you know, they altered some lyrics, they stripped it down a bit, and it became this very big off-Broadway hit, allowed them to do other things. Uh, I think Shire then went off to do some film work uh, and eventually got an Oscar. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What was his Oscar for? Do you remember? The song from Norma Ray. The It Goes How It Goes. Yeah. Got but it. It's so interesting about what you just said is like, it's fascinating to me that the thing that finally, as you said, like got them to like hit with their own stuff was creating a show of their own. Haha, ha, it's Merrily reference. But mm -hmm. um, Richard Maltby, um, you know, it's interesting that they're both at the end of the day, slightly more well known for things that they did separately. Like obviously David Shire, as we said, just won an Oscar. He did all this film scoring and like Richard Maltby's longest running shows are Miss Saigon and like the best musical, Ain't Misbehaving, which he 
conceived mm-hmm. and created. And it's like- And one of the Tony for directing as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, he's like brilliant at that. But um, even though Amos Behaven is super different than starting here, starting now, I'm closer than ever, that man's talent for like crafting a review or a song cycle and making something that like is the sum of, like greater than the sum of its parts, even though all the sum of it, the, the parts themselves are incredible, but like making the evening bigger than itself in that way. Um, I think he's like the expert at that and it's something that like has always been inspiring to me even when like crafting a concert or an evening that's like you know a smaller thing and not a full production like the way that those shows do that I think is like the pinnacle yeah well because they don't you know force a book necessarily on it there's a structure but it's not like it's not the structure of a jukebox musical today or a princess theater musical from the 20s where it's like, hey, Jen, what day is it today? It's Tuesday. It, like, you know, that kind of thing. It's just, it's taking songs that fit and then finding a way to make them flow together without having to force it. So like starting here, starting now, now for example, um, there's, I'm a little bit off into, uh, I think I may want to remember today, I believe, and then beautiful. And it's like, when I found out that I think I may want to remember today came from another musical. I was like, what do you mean this was written for something other than this show? It all just fits so well together. I know quite well how out of proportion things get, so I'll be as succinct as I can. What has happened this evening is just that I've met the most totally beautiful man. And I, I think I may want to What's so interesting to me about their sound is like Malpy and Shire, when they were out of town with How Do You Do I Love You, were working with Jonathan Tunick as their orchestrator. Um, and it's like also kind of an infamous story that like Sondheim and Hal Prince came to see it to check out Malpy and Shire. And what they ended up doing was like falling in love with Jonathan Tunick and obviously mm-hmm. like collaborating with him later on company. But like when Burt Bacharach said to Sondheim, I'm writing a musical, who should I work with as the orchestrator? And he said, oh, get that guy from How Do You Do I Love You? It's like Jonathan Tunick is really the one who had the major breakthrough from that show. Um, mm-hmm. And you can feel it even though he did not orchestrate starting here starting now in the way that the music is kind of crafted around these like musical theater sounds but also these like pop sounds at the time and I think it's the same reason why like you know Barbara Streisand recorded Malfi and Shire songs that she discovered on David Shire's piano when he was playing Funny Girl um, because people kind of recognized that what they were doing was like this combination of pop music and Broadway um, that could be like g- given a different tone than the theater music that they were hearing. It's so funny because Broadway for a long time was really struggling to keep up with the modern sound. Uh, it was like once hair kind of hit and then promises, promises after that, Broadway was like, oh, I, how do we keep the songs relevant? And like, which constantly try to find new ways. They would like bring the hair guys back and do Dude or Two Gentlemen of Verona. And it's like just never really quite clicked. And, you know, like for every... Uh, the Wiz or Chorus Line, you have, you know, like a Richard Rogers show that kind of just bombed. And if Malby and Shire were really sort of given leeway, I feel like they would have sort of helped with that transition because they were so good, as you said, like finding the musical theater vernacular with a 60s and 70s sound. Um, and then I would even argue with Closer Than Ever and Baby the 80s, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, what's your favorite song from Starting Here, Starting Now? If you had to pick one, Oh my God. You know, it might be pleased with myself, but I have to say I did like do a crossword puzzle in high school and was like so obsessed that it performed it badly. Like I'm not a performer, but I was so deeply obsessed with that song. So I kind of have to name both of those two, but it's so hard to pick a favorite. It, it is. I also, uh, as someone who's done starting here, starting now, 
Richard Maltby Jr., hi, Rich, if you're listening, writes such detailed notes about every single song, about how, not necessarily how the actor should play it, but like what the actor should know going into it. Like, this is what the song is meant to be about. And then like, you kind of figure out how to do it. And then he also will kind of give bullet points of like, here are traps that you might fall into. Don't, which is so generous. Um, it's similar to like Howard Ashman did the same thing with the Little Shop script. He's like, here's how you should never play this show. Uh, yeah. Of course, I then had a director who went completely against the wishes, and Charlotte's like, "We're oh, because Charlotte and I did it together." She's like, "We are dishonoring the wishes of a dead man." Is that what we're doing? <laughs> she, she, we, she and I just sort of sat in the corner, like the sophisticated theater kids who are like, "How dare!" But um, yeah, it's like some songs, like Crossword Puzzle or um, "I'm Going to Make You Beautiful," are just like they—they they are these tour de force songs that are also mountains. Like they are so difficult. But once you crack it, like you, you will just slay the boots down of the house. Slay the house down, slay the boots down house, something like that. I don't know. I'm not a drag queen. I don't, I don't know the exact terms. <laughs> I am sitting here drawing a Sunday Times crossword puzzle. Somehow the words won't come. Can you figure it me with my splendid vocabulary? Maybe I should play dumb with the four letter word. Meaning why should it happen to us? There was never a moment. So we're leaving starting here, starting now. We're exiting the 70s. Richard Mulpey Jr. and David Shire weirdly like break out with this off-Broadway review of theirs, uh, but like don't necessarily break out as a team, break out as their own. Richard Mulpey Jr. then does another thing for Manhattan Theater Club, Amos Behaven. It runs for four years. He wins a Tony. David Shire wins an Oscar. They come back together. They write an original musical called Baby, and we are in the beginning of the British invasion. Have you like read any of the reviews for Baby when it was first on Broadway? Yeah, I've read the reviews and I've read the original script. And I think what's interesting is like whenever you're making a musical that's super contemporary, mm. it's going to date faster than something that's not super contemporary. So it's interesting looking at something, even, you know, Rent, which is one of my favorite musicals. Mm. Obviously, when you're like pinpointing a specific moment in time that's supposed to be modern day, um, it's just, it's always interesting to me to see how that gets revised or how it, like people's perception of it evolves as the years go on. Oh yeah, there's a joke with Promises, Promises that it was was so on the pulse of what was happening that it became dated a week after it opened yeah totally. um, which is i mean fair and baby i actually think the score is interesting because it is of the 80s but it also is timeless in its own way um i think they're very good about not leaning too heavily on the synth the score itself does have like a nice big broadway feel as well so it is of its time and also timeless the plot of baby is three couples and pregnancy I don't want to say getting pregnant because that's not necessarily the case. I didn't want to say trying to get pregnant because that's not the case for two of them. Uh, but three different couples of, you know, somewhat close in age range. One is definitely the youngest. One is sort of like early 30s. One is early 40s, all in a college town. Um, fun fact, when I was in high school, one of my senior projects for English was to adapt a previous work as a new work. And I chose to adapt baby as a screenplay. And I did it without ever having seen or read a book of baby, just the score and a basic understanding of the plot. <laughs> and Boy, so, I love that. so I just wrote all my own dialogue. I then wrote like plot lines that weren't even part of the plot. Um, <laughs> and then like when I found the original script and I was like, Oh, I was so off. And then I read the revised script. I was like, Oh, they took some of my changes. Like, <laughs> as if they read my screenplay from senior year of high school. 
Um, I did the same thing with Sunday in the Park with George in high school as all my teachers like maybe stop turning musicals into screenplays I'm like you can't force me to do anything I love that (laughs) thank you but Baby is I think objectively their best work Um, and I say this as someone like Big is my favorite work of theirs I think Baby is this ultimate um, grand achievement and I'll let you talk about it in a second because it is your obsession but the reason I bring up the reviews is that one of the interesting ones is Frank Rich's review in the Times for it, where he really is complimentary of them for their score. And basically he was like, the show doesn't really work because the book is kind of clunky. He's like, but he's like, see it because these guys know how to write a score and have probably written the best score so far this season. And this is, and obviously Sunday hadn't come out yet, but he was like, basically he was like, it's better than the Lacage score, um, which, <laughs> Which is fighting words. Uh, I think he's not entirely wrong. I think Lakaj has some amazing high points, but then there are all other songs from like, uh, you know, like that whole dinner scene in Act Two. The like, it's supposed to be like noises offset to song, and it's just like not, not funny. Um, it's fine. I said what I said, but baby, I don't. I don't know. You, can you talk about it for a minute. I'm done talking. You know, I think, and I guess the word dated simplifies it way too much because I don't mean to call baby dated or rent dated or any of it or promises, promises. Like it's more complicated. And the way you described it is something I totally agree with. Like a week after it opens, it's a different thing. But it's like anytime you would tackle the topic of pregnancy and fertility and couplehood in modern times and gender roles, it's like, I, you know, one of my favorite plays of all time is Heidi Chronicles. And like, of course, we're not living in the same moment for feminism that Wendy Wasserstein was writing about. And like, she would have thought that we weren't, you know, it's like the way that um, I always am fascinated by some, when things are breaking ground, they are the first things to become um, different. Like the things in them become different anyway. Mm. But, um, but yeah, to speak about the baby score, it's like, I, the first time I heard Liz Calloway and Todd Graff singing what could be better, like, I just remember being so deeply blown away by that because I think with baby, you know, rightfully so people talk so much about the story goes on and people talk so much about like the big, ballads but it's like some of the story songs like what could be better and baby are like the best that musical theater could possibly be just like pinpointing characters and I think um what makes me sad is like for me the best musicals I call sneaker musicals and it's something from like falsettos where like I'm also so obsessed with the work of Bill Finn and like it's like people are wearing sneakers and it's not literally true and there are plenty of exceptions and like I do love Les Mis like it's not all sneaker musicals but there's something about a musical where you're like that person could be sitting next to me on the subway like I could have met you know Lizzie and Danny at like a bar like it's something about it being about real people that Malfi and Shire excel at in such an extraordinary way especially in Baby that I think makes it so touching um I just always think with shows like that it's like I usually want to see the version where it's like set in 1983 and not where we pretend that it's 2020 I guess is where I mean to take it when I'm talking about like you know things that are of their time yeah well that was famously like the big gripe everyone had with the promises revival they were like keep it in 1969 that was what it was written to be it only makes sense in that year like uh so yeah like when we say dated, I think like I use the word dated when it comes to like pop culture references, like things that maybe won't get as big laugh today as they might have in like 1952. I mean, even if, <laughs> hate to bring it up again, guys, if you listen to the audio of the final preview of Smile, <laughs> it's an audience of gay men 
that get absolutely every single joke that Howard Ashman has put in there. When they sing like Jerry Ferraro, We Girls of Tomorrow, everybody in that audience loses it. Because <laughs> first of all, it's a phenomenal rhyme, but also they're like, oh my God. So that's what I'm, when I say dated, that's what I mean. Like those kind of references. Where it becomes more timely, as you said, is like, you know, the themes that it's trying to touch on that are very much of its moment because it's a time capsule. Mm -hmm. And that's not to its detriment. It's, you know, you treat it as such. Like, this was what the moment was in 1984. Um, And we can sort of accept it for that because the music is so good. What I also liked what you said is how the sneaker musical, which I'm going to steal that term, people, you know, who could sit beside you and be in that musical that is so hard to do because let's be honest most of us do not lead lives that could warrant a musical um musicals are supposed to be if i'm I'm just going like strictly speaking when emotions are so high in a scene you have to burst out the song and then you have to burst out into dance and as we've sort of progressed in the modern age our emotions have been tampered a bit by you know uh how easy things can come to us, the the quickness of everything. And so there's less bite, sometimes less fight. Our emotions can, emotions can be tampered. So in order to write a musical about modern day people in a way where like not only is it well done, but like it fits, it doesn't feel ridiculous, is such a feat. Um, and I think Baby is a really great example of that where the score actually improves the show so much like it's not one of those things where you go oh why are they singing you're like no please sing more songs that immediately in baby that come out to you yeah, you know, I was so obsessed with the Lizzie and Danny track, probably from, you know, falling in love with Baby when I was a teenager. Perhaps if I got to know it in my 30s, I would like the Nick Pam track. But so uh, Two People in Love is obviously amazing. Um, I think ladies singing their song is like a feat of songwriting and performance. Um, I'm and so I love- happy you said that. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, keep going. I Want It All um, is just, I mean, everything. Um, and the I Want It All story that like floored me, I think it's one of the first Malfi and Charlotte related stories I ever knew, was that um, they were told, like the cast members were told, uh, if we don't win some Tonys, we're definitely gonna post closing the day after. Um, and Liz Calloway has shared, like she knew if they didn't win the Tony for best score, which even with Sunday, they thought they had like a shot at, and you mentioned the Frank Rich review. Um, and they were like, if we, if we just win best score, maybe we won't have to post closing tomorrow and they announced best score right before those three ladies went on stage to do I want it all so they literally were like best score goes to and like they didn't win and then um haha what a controversial Tony's that was um and then they ran on stage to sing I want it all being like oh now we know our show will post closing tomorrow um Mm -hmm. and you can't see it in the performance like you can't recognize it in that YouTube clip um but I just like the heartbreak of show business is all in Mm -hmm. that story you tell me that story and I didn't know that at all but with looking back on the performance, it is sort of like that Woody Buzz Jesse Toy Story 3, like going to the incinerator where like they're just like, you know what? Grab hands and it's sort of like, let's go on that stage and just slay it because we're gonna show them what they didn't vote for. And I love it because they 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 sing the crap out of it. And I say this as someone who I love Sunday and I really like Lacage. And Lacage has a very good Tony performance. And Sunday has a very good Tony performance. I think the baby Tony performance is better than both of them. 
and that's a I know it's controversial, but I think it's because Sunday the Act One finale works so well in context. The watching on the Tonys, like if you didn't know what it was, you'd be like, okay, um, and like. Lacage is good, but I think it was sort of um, a cop out that George Hearn wasn't in drag to do I Am What I Am. Uh, so, like, I don't know, Baby, I just feel like was both the truest to what it was presenting and also just a good out of context presentation. Uh, totally. And I also, you know, as a kid, I took real exception to the like constant idea that like the 70s and 80s were like barren for musical theater. Because for me growing up, being obsessed with Baby and being obsessed with Sunday and like learning all these shows and the rink, I was like, oh my God, like what I would give for a season with like a new Mafia Shire score, a new Canon Ebb score. And like, this is such a weird um, sidebar to this. But one of my favorite things that I've like experienced during quarantine is Todd Graff, who's the original like Danny from Baby, who's also mm-hmm. one of my heroes he does this like musical theater trivia zoom and like I've been playing it with him um and the whole punchline of this story is that at some point I got some obscure question right because the answer was Doonesbury which was another <laughs> musical that was playing that season and I literally was like the answer to this question is Doonesbury but I was like Todd Grab, I'm gonna call you on this because like the reason you put Doonesbury in this game is because it was playing at the Biltmore when baby was at the Barrymore so you like have it in your head because you walked by it and it was just like I don't know like the magic of that 1984 season really hit me but I think that it's like kind of garbage when people oversimplify to saying like the 80s were completely barren um Mm. because like that season was amazing yeah I think it was more like there were I think the 80s kind of fell into a major slump midway and then it definitely towards the end uh but they but there are some amazing highs in the 80s that people don't like to acknowledge because you know we like to speak in headlines and you know, and we tweet and we do Instagram and nobody wants to have the conversation anymore. Uh, fun fact, speaking of all, all this, I just had an episode come out recently where my friend Matt came on to talk about his obsession with Sunset Boulevard, his obsession, not my obsession. And I posted about it on Instagram and somebody I don't know commented on it basically saying like, Patti Lapone can't act. She shouted the entire time. She, you only see Patti on stage. And I wrote him what I thought was a very respectful reply. Uh, that was, you know, more than a sentence, but less than a paragraph. It was like a solid six or seven. I was like, I hear you. I see you. I respectfully disagree. Um, I can see why you would think that with like this, this, and this. But I think this, this, and this also works in this way. And he just writes back. He's like, girl, bye. You expect me to read all of that? And I'm like, it's seven sentences, girl. People just, first of all, I think everyone's going absolutely insane in their apartments from all these months of quarantine. But yeah, you're totally right. I think like there's such value in discussing like these elements of musical theater. And I'm so glad that you do so much of that. And like not in just having it be the soundbite of like the 80s sucked or like this person sucked in this musical. I mean, I'm happy to give you a soundbite if you want it. Like I can, (laughs) I can can come up with them. I find it a little boring and I've had like, back in the before time when it was like 50 people in a room drinking, I definitely would have these conversations that turn into arguments because I would sort of, I, it would feel like I was playing um, squash, you know, against like a big brick wall where I would keep on like trying to have the conversation and be like, no, no. And I would just get so frustrated. I'm like, say something other than that. Um, So I'm I'm loving having this conversation with you. Granted, we've been agreeing on just about everything. (laughs) 
but maybe I, we'll really disagree on our favorite song from closer than ever that's like our last hope for well so to be fair i don't know closer than ever that well i definitely know big baby and starting here starting now more i listened to closer than ever a lot more in preparation for this episode and i have um a thought that i want to run by you and then we'll go into that later towards the episode as well but uh final thoughts on baby uh brought us the greatness of Liz Calloway, Todd Graff is phenomenal. It's a, it's a beautiful cast up and down. Uh, yeah. I love Beth Fowler. I don't think gets enough credit for her vocal work on that show. I think that like you and I would both agree, like the score is so miraculous. Like we deserve a major New York revival. So like we can hear that score orchestrated and performed the way that like, it was meant to be performed. Um, you know, I would love, love, love to see it. There was a production that like got a lot of attention that I didn't see um, years ago at Paper Mill that was like LaShawn's and all these, like, it was like an all-star. I think Carly Carmelo, mm-hmm. it was like a really Norm great- Lewis. Yeah, I remember Norm that. Lewis. Oh, I forgot. I think um, that was yeah. that was the debut of the new book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't get to see that. I've seen some um, other productions over the years, but like we deserve like our big Broadway baby comeback. I'm not saying like it needs to be at, you know, the lyric or something, but it, it should be like a big way. My head is high in the air. Yeah, so let's let's transition from Baby, which is I think officially their Broadway debut as a team, their first Tony nomination. They sadly don't win, such is life. And then it's like another twelve years until they come back to Broadway again. Uh, Richard has his big hit with Miss Saigon and works on a couple of other things in the interim. David Shire does his other stuff. Uh, oh, sorry, not big. I want to. Uh, we'll get to big in a minute, but um, because big is. 12 years since they come back to Broadway, but Closer Than Ever is their next big thing together. Um, And that's also off-Broadway, yet again, a review. This time, all the songs are written for the review, I do believe. Um, You know, it had some songs that were written directly for it, but a lot of the songs in Closer Than Ever are actually from previous projects. In fact, there's a few cut songs from Baby that are in Closer Than Ever. Tell me Miss Bird is from Baby. (laughs) It's not, it's not. It was written for Kim Criswell, and they had to cut (laughs) it out of town. Tell me that. Um, the Masterworks Broadway website has a really good breakdown of for both Starting Here, Starting Now and Closer Than Ever, um, if you're listening and you're a super nerd like us, where all the songs came from. That is good to know. We will all head to that website promptly. Closer Than Ever, uh, it's sort of like, Closer Than Ever, I feel like, is as if they were like, so that, that, that older couple and baby, what if we, what if we did a review about them and all their friends? And that is sort of closer than ever for me. In fact, li- listening to it, because there were some songs I did know and then other songs that I was less aware of, listening to it during this week while prepping for this episode, I had this feeling to myself, and maybe it's because it came out the same year as this movie, but I was like, if anyone could write a musical version of When Harry Met Sally, it is Maltby and Shire. Because like, listening to it, you're like, this is 80s New York, you know, people in their mid to late 30s, early 40s, urbanite intelligent people with sex lives and i was like that, that yeah that's sort of the, i had that brainstorm i was like i'm gonna let me tell this to to jen as we record and see if we can start getting that off the ground no you're totally right it's like they they had their finger on an authenticity about that demographic in a way that like is exceptional um i think um you know when we did 
closer than ever in Rens a Minute, we had Lynn Wintersteller sing Life Story, which like is truly like that song blows my brain away. It's kind of like the musical Follies in that I heard Life Story, you know, in high school and was like, what a great song. And then you hear it years later, you're like, oh, this song is about all these things I didn't realize it was about. And then I was listening to it walking in Central Park a couple weeks ago and was like, holy fucking shit. I'm sorry if you have to like, I don't know if you have to censor that. Probably not. Oh, no, 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 no. no. That will be shown in its entirety. In its (laughs) glory. that song it's just like you know all we want is musical theater that's like layered and exceptional enough that like we can't get it all in the first hearing and I certainly didn't get that although I will say that like her coming to sing that and runs a minute and recreating it was like such a highlight for my co-host Kevin Michael Murphy and I and like the story that Kevin always tells is like he did the Book of Mormon tour and he got recognized in a gay bar I want to say it was Cleveland or something and someone came up to him and was like oh my god aren't you the guy from the Lynn Winterstellar YouTube of life story that's the best like no one will ever get recognized for anything better because it's just him and I like you know hosting and sitting Mm -hmm. on the side of the stage staring at her adoringly um but yeah I for listeners like if you haven't heard that song it's unbelievable it is a beautiful song it's a story song life story song I raised my son and I had lovers my choices sometimes take explaining I'd beat some chuck my friends would scoff he'd stay a while I'd drive him off I kept my space, preserved my turf. Six months, I'd send him back to serve. And no, I was not complaining. When I think about like Richard Malpe probably sitting, like talking to a friend over coffee in the 70s, I'm like, did he have a photographic memory? Like, did he, he just like understands what other human beings go through and like creates songs that are based on like so many different experiences. Yeah, it's it is beautiful. It's what was I oh, in terms of uh, David Shire's music, it is very you know melodic, and he's very good also at, like showing off a singer's range, like when the song calls for it. But it's not one of those songs where you're like, oh, well, they're just you know they're wailing now. Like the word, it's always the words always come first, and but also it's never a disservice to the music at the same time. It's a beautiful blend, um, and you, I'm sure anyone can argue that some songs work better for them than others, but we all can agree that when that song works for us, like it works in a way that is the best of musical theater. Um, Cause like even a song like Miss Bird is this wonderful showstopper, but doesn't like show off a whole ton of vocal range. It's really about sort of the attitude. It's, it's less aggressive than say, you know, you want to be my friend. Uh, it's less whaley than some of the songs in starting here, starting now. Cause like just across the river is a bop and it does show off a nice like solid C C sharp if you have that singer for it. But the words still come across. I love that you were like, I don't know closer than ever as well as the other ones. And now you're just like pulling out dozens of song titles from it. <laughs> Listen, we all have our standards of what we consider like know really well. Um, <laughs> like I can do a one man show of shine from smile being every single girl talking to the Elks. Um, <laughs> like if I ever do drag, which um, you know, TikTok, I will do a lip sync to that demo recording with the two synthesizers and the five girls and they're all doubling as multiple roles. And I can do, I can lip sync all of them perfectly. And I know there are inflections with everything. Sandra K. McAfee starts with hi and Sean Christensen starts with hi. It's just like, <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. I love it so much. If I ever meet Jody Benson, I'll be like, yes, we'll talk about Mermaid in a minute, but smile. 
this was honestly me the entire like two weeks of that reunion concert rehearsal um I will say like one of the only ensemble songs that's like impressive that I think I could do the whole thing of like one person although not sung well would be until tomorrow night like I just I know every single word of until tomorrow night and when we finally got in rehearsal with all those women who were on that original record like all of that mm-hmm. I just was like oh like I could actually sing this with them <laughs> yeah, if if I wanted to um something about those lyrics that like I would be interested you're inspiring me to wonder like I wonder what Malfi and Char thought of Smile like I wonder what even though sadly we probably won't know what Har- like Marvin Hamlish and Howard Ashton thought of Baby but it's mm-hmm. like the way that the lyrics especially like take I want it all as an example like the topical um you know I want to be Donna McKechnie Donna Summer Donna Reed I you know wish I look like Terry Garr just the like really apt very funny very perfect references that as we spoke about like are of their time and Mm -hmm. should be um are very specific like in those shows and kind of parallel yeah absolutely I mean I maybe it's because I I'm so sensitive towards it and because I like Rich's work so much. I like to think Richard Mulvey and David Shire would have liked the score to smile. Uh, maybe they don't. It's totally fine. Uh, I've been listening to this podcast called Blank Check that goes through like filmographies of directors, and they were talking about Julie and Julia. And like one of the themes is how like this woman Julie is in love with Julia Child, or at least the idea of her, and then has to come to terms with the fact that like Julia Child doesn't really care about her. Like found out about her blog and was like, I don't like that. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Maybe growth is knowing that like Richard maybe doesn't like smile and that's okay. So we leave the 80s. We leave When Harry Met Sally closer than ever. Final words on closer than ever, because that is like a big one for you. Yeah, you know, I think like everyone should just go listen to the cast recording. Like it speaks for itself. There's so many gems in it. And it is like, I am very grateful for my mask when I'm lip syncing to three friends when I'm walking around the park now. So it can it can come along with you on your quarantine journey. I have I have found myself like bopping along on my feet when I listen to some songs and I'm like, my mouth might be covered, but my feet give me away. <laughs> so we go into big. How did you find big in your life? You know, I don't remember. I know that starting here, starting now was first, but in terms of those four pillars, as you wisely called them, of cast recordings, I just know that, you know, by the time I graduated high school, all four of them were in like huge repertoire in my like boom box. Mm-hmm. Um, big, I loved, um, but it definitely was like both. Uh, there were like certain songs from it that I think I played a million times on repeat as opposed to like really listening through the cast album. I just was like way too obsessed with Cross the Line and Dancing All the Time. Like I couldn't bear to never, like I just wanted to listen to those songs on repeat. I was so obsessed with them. I mean, there are some songs in Big that I don't care what anyone says, how jaded you might be, how uppity you might be. Like there are some songs that just are so good that they buck anything you have to say, like cross the line, dancing all the time, stop time, just like brilliant, brilliant, brilliant songs. I saw Big on Broadway when I was six. I was never the same. I will die for that cast recording. I love, I mean, I love the sort of, it's, I don't want to call them bipolar orchestrations, but it's just like, Jen just laughed at me when I said that because she knew exactly what I was talking about, but it's like, because it's not quite baby where it's all blended together to be one unique sound. It is very divisive, but I think decidedly so. Yeah. And all you need is the overture to like know that because it starts with this 
groundswell of strings and horns and then it goes into these synths and like guitar that is just so 1996 that's like it's supposed like i think it's supposed to be an arcade game that josh is playing or something like that and that's all i need to know about sort of the style of that score of these guys that were trying to kind of create a, uh, a sound that was of the time but still timely and i don't know how successful they were at it all i know is that i love listening to it thing where um you know coming off of beauty and the beast in 94 and the idea that broadway was embracing the family audience in a new way um you know the idea that big was a show for a family audience um but when you're doing a broadway show you need to be able to reach so many different demographics that like no broadway show has ever succeeded based on just the family audience or just the day night audience or just the tired businessman it's like you need to capture multiple silos um in order to actually run and so if people have the idea that a show is you know quote unquote just for a family audience which I think maybe there was like a misconception sort of with big that it's like all these, you know, kids running around and whatever. Um, hopefully, you know, you can overcome that. And certainly like the show, if you get people in seats, like would overcome that. Um, but there's something in that stigma too, that I think can kind of be a challenge, especially for marketing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it was definitely something that they had problems with because they were trying to get that family audience and then they were kind of getting them, but they weren't getting enough people and you can't just rely on it. So they definitely were sort of screwed with that. But it's interesting because when reading Making It Big, like the idea for the show came from Dee Dee Khan of all people, uh, David Shire's wife. Like the, I think the concept from the community was like, oh, this movie studio and this corporation wanted to make money off of Broadway. And so they hired some talent. It's like, no, the talent came up with it on their own and then presented good material to the studio and they're like yeah sure let's give it a shot totally it's like the perception of something commercial like the most unseemingly commercial thing can be actually like you know anticipate like you know plan to be that way and mm -hmm. like vice versa can also be true um but i also like i don't want to underestimate you know the capacity and intelligence of children but i think you also end up with a problem when it's a show that largely does attract a family audience and then you know you have six-year-olds that are like why am i listening to stop time and hopefully that's not what you have hopefully you have six-year-olds that are like teach me about you know clever ballads but there's something in like i'll never forget when i saw shrek and it got to the like big brian darcy james song like build a wall and i was like oh my god this is like my favorite part of the show i love this song like what a great song this is my favorite part and it was like the one part of the show where like all the kids started like throwing their sippy cups and like crinkling their you know candy and it's like when you do have a show that heavily weights towards one kind of audience you have to um cater it to them in some ways and that's also a challenge when you're creating a musical like big yeah and a show like big or like shrek that do have a legacy and do have a lot of cooks in the kitchen and I'm not, I'm not going to use this as an opportunity to like point out any flaws to either because I, I love Big and I actually think that the Shrek score is really quite wonderful. You do get this issue when you are trying to attract, trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator of entertainment in a show, even if it's for a second, even just the one second. So like, for example, in Shrek, a fart joke, which works in Shrek for the most part, but it's like when you're trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator and then you try to hit this higher ground later on, the kids in the audience that loved the fart joke 30 minutes ago are like, where's the fart joke? You kind of have to force them to come up to a higher level, even if it's only like two steps above where they were before. Uh, 
which is something that is really hard to do. There's a reason why a lot of uh, kids' movies haven't, like, continued with time you know like we don't really hear much about a lot of the kids movies from the 60s or 70s uh the disney renaissance was sort of like the first time in a long time that like a kids movie could also appeal to adults and part of it is the length but also you know like the movies didn't treat kids like idiots they're like this is a clear-cut story you're gonna sit down and listen to part of your world like you're gonna listen to um something there and i think that's something where it's a shame with Big that like you have uh, It's Time, which is, uh, I love It's Time. I Susan Stroman and, this, and the Sippy Cup uh, ballet is amazing. But it also then makes the kids restless for Stop Time, which is arguably a better song and can challenge them a bit more. Uh, it's, and it's a shame. I think that children need to be smarter and they need to be forced to be smarter and i think a show like they could do that if we let them nobody warns you of this parents paradox you want your kid to change and grow but when he does another child you've just begun to know leaves Birthdays fly, seven, eight, nine, ten. I don't want to generalize anything because I think there are kids who probably like went to see Passion and were like, this is my favorite musical. Um, but Laura I, Benanti, that's Laura Benanti. It's, that's our, it's, that's it's, our whole life story. Oscar for Halloween. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's almost always more about a perception and how it creates the ticket buying um, patterns around the perception. You know, it's people that are going, baby, that's about, you know, three heterosexual couples. That feels like very heteronormative. So I'm not interested in like, you know, bringing my pride parade or like whatever version of like identity and perception about a show. I just said that because like there were some kind of, um, I'm trying to remember whose review it was. There were some reviews of baby that I read at some point that really criticized the heteronormative and said that like the gay community like didn't embrace the show because of that and that like that's a perception of like a demographic that you're never gonna have a success if like that happened like, I don't know I'm trying to remember it was something that I read at the library you was this from that? no is this this was from the 1984 production yes it's okay a review that I read in those blue books at the New York Public Library that's yep. not on the internet because I remember sitting there reading it and being like oh I never thought of that because like obviously art has catered towards the heteronormative for so long that like you know whatever but but it's something about like the show literally being about pregnancy that they were saying turned off the gay audience and I believe it was like an LGBTQ writer writing this so whatever <laughs> I've gone off on like an incredible tangent but I just mean that like there's something in the perception of what demographics will enjoy something. You know, I'm sure that like two 70 year olds would go see big and be like, what a great show full of bops. Like it's often not about what happens when you get the people in the theater seats. It's about what they perceive the show to be about based on marketing materials, based on the title, based on yeah. the word. Absolutely. Uh, I never thought about that with baby. And if that was like how the gay community was thinking or the, the LGBTQ community was thinking in 1984, I'm like, wow, we were very brave then. Cause we didn't have anything. <laughs> so like to single out this one musical, it's like, okay, this is our cause for the year. Like I re like torch song trilogy came out and we were like, great done. We can protest everything now. 
Like, um, come. It's one of those things that, like, I miss the most during quarantine of, like, I spend so much time in the stacks of the New York Public Library reading the clipping reviews, which, like, mm-hmm. the stacks of blue books, everyone, once, you know, this is all over and the library opens, go read them. Um, They just have, like, alphabetically by season every review of every show. And sometimes I'll find something that I'm like, this is insane. Oh, yeah. I... I would like to go and look at all that because I've only been able to do like online research for that sort of stuff and I found some good stuff. And I also have Frank Rich's hot seat, which is wonderful. He's very on the pulse about a lot of things. Uh, some things I disagree, but he was sort of the first major critic at the time to like call out writers for misogyny or like homophobia to be like, you are using this gay character for a, as like a punchline and that's not okay and like you are writing this woman as a like sexual object or overt like he actually was very open about his criticism of Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals and the misogyny in them which is to say in addition to the fact that like it's just misogyny how he vocally writes the roles but that's another day but if you think about it the majority of of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber shows the women are either like virgins or sex objects like it's it's a Madonna whore literally and then every now and then, like, the older female, like, comedic role. Uh, and it's, like, it, there's, like, no, there's never an, an, an in-between. And Frank Rich was very critical about that in every musical he would see with Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's like, once again, Andrew Lloyd Webber thinks of women as virgins and whores, and they are more than that. And I'm like, you know what? For 1988, like, to be a white man who's heterosexual in New York City, like, good for you, Frank Rich. That was, like, no one else really in your bracket was thinking that way uh and a lot of them still don't all of that is so true and he also like frank rich is such a brilliant brilliant writer that Mm -hmm. even um there are times where i'm like i wish i could get in my time machine frank rich because i don't think i would have hated this show as much as you hated this show but i still can often separate what he's saying from what i might think um Mm -hmm. because he doesn't present his opinion always as like gospel in a certain way and he also is so descriptive that i can tell kind of what he didn't like about something and that I still might based on the way he describes it, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. He is very open about, or was very open, I should say, that it was like his visceral reaction, like his journey coming to it, which is all what any art is, right? It's how we take it in in that moment in our lives and what we bring from ourselves to it. How That's how we analyze it. It's why like you and I can see the same show and be like, oh, that was about this. No, it was about this. Uh, but you know, we are in agreement that Malpy and Shire are phenomenal. <laughs> yes. I think we all want a time machine to go see the 1984 season. Like, let's just go see The Rink and Baby and Doonesbury and Sunday and Lacage and Tap Dance Kid. Truly all I know about Doonesbury is that it came out that season, was at the Biltmore, and is based on a cartoon. It's literally all I know. You know, it the LP, which was the reason you don't know it is probably because it was never put on CD. So most people have never heard it, but um, I don't think it was. But um, the LP, the score by Liz Suedos does have a lot of bops. I feel like you might enjoy it. Okay. Liz Suedos writing bops. That is, I feel like that's a little against type for her. Because like, as much as I like Runaways, I feel like any bops that are in Runaways are like, they slipped by her. She's like, what do you mean I wrote a catchy song? That wasn't supposed to be in there. I promise you, and like Doonesbury is my favorite of all of her scores, like it genuinely has bops. And I think she was trying to do a sort of 80s pop kind of pop culture thing that um, was specific to Doonesbury that, I don't know, translated to a really interesting score. Mm, get me into it. I'll look, I'll look at that. Final thoughts on Big and then final thoughts on Malpy and Shire. 
Um, you know, I would have loved to see that big that happened in London. I will say, like, I've seen productions of all Malty and Shire shows except big. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, like, it totally makes sense that it's your favorite. And I feel like if I had seen it as a kid, it would have been mine. Um, I, I, like, ache for the urge to, I want to see big. You know, I've never actually seen it. It was very elaborate. I remember that. And I remember them throwing out paper airplanes at Curtain Call and I grabbed one. It had big stickers all over it. I've been kept... I've kept up to date with all the changes they've made to the show because I know that it's something they have worked on a bunch. They worked on it for a national tour, then worked on it again for London. Uh, I don't love all the changes they made. I know that something that they always struggled with was the first song for Susan Lawrence in the show. And I think that the song they have for Broadway is the best of the bunch because it does have that 90s businesswoman, New York City, like hustle about it and then like goes back and forth they I think changed it to my secretary's in love which is a much more harsh song and like it's supposed to be funny because it's all about like how she's not getting any work done basically it's a lyric they took a line they took from the movie and turned it into a two-minute song and it's one of those things where it's not a criticism of them but rather like it's really hard to make a one joke song funny for two minutes Mm -hmm. and that's sort of what that song is but I, th- I think so many of the songs in the original version are just so good and like very insightful. And then also you have catchy ones and cute and funny. Uh, yeah. And like they also, and they still play around with the genre. Like stop time is so different from the nightmare song where they're like doing acapella, happy birthday, Josh, which is like a whole chant. Uh, and it's sort of like West Side Story where it's like, yes, it's about this generation of children, but it also exists outside of itself because it's so highly theatrical. Uh, so it still can kind of work. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Like there's something inherent in musical theater that is interesting because if a movie about kids in 1996 is made in 1986, it's always going to be there. But if even if something is still set in 1996, if you're watching a revival in 2021, you know on some cognitive level that you're watching human beings in 2021. So there's just something about that that I think like creates an interesting dichotomy in musicals. Oh yeah. Well, think about how iconic Clueless still is. And I mean, that is you could argue that is so dated because of all the references and the lingo and, and whatnot, when she's like, he's kind of a Baldwin. And someone says to you, what does that mean? Like, you know, like a Baldwin brother. And they would go, Alec Baldwin, have you seen him lately? Like, it would be that. So, but it still is so iconic and works so well. Uh, so yeah, that, that reference wasn't for anything other than to just agree with you <laughs> in a really intense way. I also just like in terms of final thoughts on big it's like listeners you know like go listen to all these cast albums but if you're going to do something other than listen to the cast albums like people should read that book about big because it really Mm. is like incredible it is i will say big's ultimate legacy is that it changed tony nominating forever because the tony nominations and correct me if i'm wrong on this from what i remember it used to be the way that the oscars now vote on uh winners which is that you don't vote for like you didn't used to vote for like your four nominees you would put number you would like put numbers down for what was your one what was your two what was your three what was your four and big ended up getting nominated for everything that a best musical nominee should get nominated for other than best musical 
basically, and we are spoiling a little bit of the book, which I think is totally fine, but it's like people wanted to like not get let big get that nomination so much that they specifically like voted in a way for shows that had already closed that were like much like lower on the you know scale of that season so that big couldn't get the nomination like they gamed the tony system um it's really i mean it's laid out in the book in a really great way i also like one of my favorite fascinating things about that season where everyone thought that like big was going to be the big musical and then rent swooped in out of nowhere is that busker alley was the other big show that season and like big spent the whole season at the schubert across from all of these gigantic busker alley marquees and murals at the saint james and then that show didn't even come in yeah it's it's absolutely because yeah when the book starts they think busker alley is going to be like their big competition and then busker alley never comes in and while they're out of town rent and bring into noise bring in the funk both like open off broadway and become these huge revolutions and also uh, like i remember hearing stories from michael barres who i worked for for a while that like he was in busker alley and they actually rehearsed before they went out of town at the nederlander just because the nederlander was totally empty <laughs> and then like rent comes in so it's like it's the ultimate like you know and i say this a lot but it's like smash was a documentary where it's like everyone sees a tv show like smash about all the outrageous things that happen on broadway and are like that can never happen that can never happen and i'm always like crazier things have happened oh yeah i think smash it's more the like all the craziest things that happened in the last 20 years of Broadway they smashed in one season of a show so it's like oh that's a little much it's like well all that happened just you know over the course of 20 years <laughs> uh but yeah no I absolutely agree with you uh but the reason I mentioned the Tony nominations is that as you said like you know people gamed the system to make sure Big didn't get the nomination and then ultimately the nominating process has now changed where it's no longer a number system it's now a tallying system because of that uh, which is crazy. And Richard Mulpey Jr. was going to write a letter to the Times about the whole thing, which he then ended up shelving. And then they put in the book where he's like, it's it's not even passive aggressive. It's like very calm, calculated, like a detective laying out all the evidence in front of a murderer one by one, how he's guilty. He's like, so you say this is what happened. Well, this is what I found. And then this, and then this. So it's like, it's not even that he's angry. He's like, I would like an explanation, please, because this is what you're telling me, and I have found so much to the contrary. It's incredible. You described it very well, but it's like, I would never want to be in a fight with Richard Malfi Jr. I bet it would be terrifying. Like, the way that he's, like, calmly laying forth that evidence is pretty amazing. I'm going to leave you with this, because I feel like you'll appreciate this image. One of my favorite memories of my time with Rich is I was obsessed with Grey Gardens when it was on Broadway. I told you, I'm like, I was always, like, the underdog so i'd seen that the playwrights i saw it on broadway i was obsessed 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 and that summer i'm telling anyone who will listen to me yeah spring awakening is wonderful but you need to see christine ebersall and i was there with charlotte and emily and i believe stage door works in sessions like three sessions of three and you can go to whichever ones you want emily charlotte and i were only at the first two that year and end of session one, their parents come up and I think their mom's like, oh yeah, Great Gardens is closing. I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to get to see it again. And you'll never get to see it, Emily and Charlotte. And then at the end of session two, they come back up and Rich is like, we bought four tickets for the final performance of Great Gardens. It closes the weekend. You come back from stage door. You three are coming with me and we're going to see the final performance of Great Gardens. So I saw the final performance of that show with Richard Malpey Jr. and his two daughters, front row mezzanine of the Walter Kerr Theater.
That's amazing. I love that story. I love that we're ending with that. I love that story, period. Because like the like Malpies are just magical in general. Like I love Charlotte and Emily too. Like I just think they're like a magical New York family. Jen, this has been lovely. This has been so lovely. I really feel like we've just been like chatting. That's that is what I aim for on this podcast. Either to just chat with someone or to like infect someone with my love of Smile or Sally Murphy or Carousel and hopefully, you know, convert some people. Uh, where can people find you on medias of social? People can find me at Jen Ashtep um, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah, that's, that's where. And you have a website? Yes, JenniferAshleyTepper.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Matt Koplik, usual spelling. Jen, we close out every episode with uh, Broadway Diva, and you have an interesting choice for today. Can you uh, tell us your divas of choice today? Yes, we picked I Want It All from Musical Baby, um, which is a song that we talked about earlier. Um, It is the three main characters of Baby, um, who are three women of different ages, um, singing about what they want. And I'm going to give it no spoilers other than that. Yeah, it's so many references so much belting so much mixing it's wonderful and it's who are our three singers uh we have liz calloway and katherine cox and beth fowler yes technically we've had liz calloway before but we haven't had her with beth fowler and katherine cox so y'all can come for me if you want i don't care for we love it so much um yes make sure to uh rate us rate us five stars give us a nice little review if you can i'll even take like three letters of, you know, IDK, my BFF, Jill, whatever. Just the, those ratings, guys, they help with the algorithm. They help other people discover us. We love being a boutique podcast, but I would not mind to be like a small chain. So just go for it. And in the meantime, you know, keep living your lives and take us away. Liz, Beth, and Catherine. Bye. wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.